I wanna grow, grow, grow into all that you have for me. Show, show, show how your love has set me free. And go, 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 tell the world so they can see you're amazing. Here we go, shout it out. Shout it out, you're never gonna let me go. Shout it out, you are my God. Shout it out, my Savior has set me free. Not to us, but Carpenter's Way. That's a way to start a service, right? Uh, if you're not already on your feet, I don't know why, but you can stand if you want to worship with us. You don't have to. <laughs> uh, you're more than welcome to stand and worship with us as we jump back into worship here.
His mercy will cover all my days. He understands my sorrows, discouragement and pain. He's crowns my temptation and overcame. He overcame.
fountain where living waters will flow. Thank you. 
you'll stand for the scripture, if you can. Read it along with me. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. It gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. It takes his moment All it takes is word Bring light to the dark And give life to this heart Hope you are peace to my soul the one who sustains me You're the voice speaking truth I could search all the earth To find something of worth But all that I need is in you
takes his word Father God, that's our prayer, Lord, is that we would be able to delight in you, Lord. God, we look around this world, and as Paul tells us in Romans, it's just such beauty. There's such wonder that testifies to your name, and it's so easy, Lord, to get captured and, and just caught up in that and, and what this world has to offer. Lord, I, I just I pray, Lord, that we would be people who are captivated by you and you alone, Lord that nothing else would compare to your glory and the beauty of your name, Lord. God, we praise you. We thank you for what you have done for us, with, that you have welcomed us into your family, that you have called us into your family, that you have adopted us as your own. God, we praise you and we thank you. We have one more song here. Um, it's called Ain't No Grave, so if you're ready. Shame is a prison. As cruel as a grave is a robber And he's come to take my name Oh, love is my redeemer Lifting me up from the ground Love is the power Where my freedom song is found There ain't no grave There ain't no grave When I hear that trumpet sound Gonna rise up out of the ground There ain't no
beloved Adam why don't you come on up here I'm going to throw you guys a curveball in the back he needs to use this mic over here or one of these mics with the gray because he has an announcement to make I do you gotta turn it on. I want to ask Katie a question Katie when are you leaving us tomorrow morning you're leaving us you did great this morning going back to where again they're excited for you to leave so uh, going to the DR and uh, starting school again and doing ministry again. She's one of our missionaries. Uh, and uh, so God bless you. Let me pray for you real quick. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work that Katie is doing. And I thank you for the work you're doing in her and uh, in the Dominican Republic. And we just thank you, Father, for how she could join us in leading worship this summer and especially this morning. And we pray you keep her safe and that her family wouldn't miss her too terribly much and would find the joy of knowing that she's in the midst of your will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Will you have a safe trip? tape trip back did your is your mic working it's on there it goes there it goes all right good morning church hey hey i'm glad to see all your smiling faces this morning um i have an announcement for you uh, our youth ministry our student ministry is uh heading into a new season uh the kickoff of school and the fall semester and everything uh and so we are doing this wednesday what i call the rookie bin the rookie big intro night, okay? Uh, and this is really for all of our incoming sixth graders so that we can kind of orient them to the student ministry. What do we do on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings? And what kind of events do we do? And what are we all about here in the student ministry? And so I'm going to be rolling out some new things for, for them. But it's unique this first time because it's kind of new for our entire group. And so I want to bring parents in on this. And so you can mark it down that you are officially invited to come and be with us this Wednesday night uh, from 6.30 to 8. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a, a sort of a vision casting message. Why do we come to youth group? What are we all about here? And so I'm going to talk a lot about purpose. And, what we're, and, and so it will not only orient our sixth graders, but also all of our parents. And it will give you a chance to kind of meet uh, your student's small group leader and uh, put a face with a name and all that kind of stuff. So um, you are invited. Please come join us, parents, this Wednesday at 630. All right, for the Rookie Bin. <laughs> I had no coffee this morning. <laughs> you are just a bundle of energy, aren't you, little boy? You started with hey, 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 hey. I used to be like that. Then I, then I turned 40. <laughs> Man, you're doing a great job. I encourage, and beyond. Did somebody say and beyond? I am not that much farther than 40, give or take 15 years, okay? Gosh. <clears throat> wow. So one thing that he wanted me to say is if you're a parent of a teenager and you usually come to Wednesday night, 
Go to be with the students Wednesday night. You can watch. We're, we're having a blast on Wednesday nights. Uh, we're, we are watching the second season of The Chosen together and discussing it. But if you have to miss a night, that's okay. You go be with the students. We're here to aid you in your parenting and your spiritual development of your student. So that's what we want to do. So you need to know what's going on in there so uh, you know who to talk to if you have concerns or, or you just need prayer and encouragement. So make sure uh, you hit it. And even if you're watching online and you have a teenage kid, why don't you join us Wednesday night, 6.30 in the student room, and we would love to have you join us. I do have a couple <clears throat> other announcements that I want to make. I did make this last week, but I want to, you know, we have a, a different congregations every week, so let me make something clear. Our entryways have changed. Uh, you notice that there's been some construction. If you're used to going 95 miles an hour through the E-Tech parking lot, you can no longer go through 90, uh, there at 90 miles an hour. In fact, if you try, you're going to end up in an embankment or a concrete barrier <laughs> They have uh, closed off the parking lot at the edge of E-Tech building. It's actually for our safety. Uh, and there is now, you know where the pharmacy building is out here, and usually you drive past it on the frontage road and come in. There's now an entrance before the pharmacy building. And uh, it is great, uh, all that parking over there. So make sure you can exit and enter there. Also on the back of the building, you can even go, go past the student room, take a left, and you can go uh, into Industrial Boulevard there. You can go straight out. So please pay attention. Don't close your eyes or look at your phone as you go into the parking lot, or you will end up in a concrete barrier. And <clears throat> I promise you we will take a picture of it and put it on Facebook. So after we find out you're okay. So that's parking. I want to mention also, we've had a lot of visitors lately. If you're interested in getting all the information on Carpenter's Way, our weekly bulletin, our weekly prayer needs, make sure when we're done here, you go out to the welcome table. Uh, my dad and my Karen, Mama Karen are out there, and uh, they will be taking, uh, you know, you can give them your information, email, phone number, and we'll make sure you get all the information during the week because we're doing everything pretty much digitally now. I do want to mention that it's my dad's 81st birthday. First birthday. I have put up with him for 81 years. I know you're going to be like, that joke didn't even work. No, 81, and I'm so glad you're here, Dad. Even if your air conditioning hasn't worked for three weeks, you guys. I've invited him every night to come sleep at our house, but oh no, they're Californians. They're all strong. But we are, happy birthday, Dad. I'm so glad you're here, and, and uh, yeah. And Mama Karen, you do a good job taking care of him. So, uh, so I'm going to break more rules than that. I'm getting personal this morning. Our goal, our goal when we, when we get together in the Word is not to perform church service or programming. It's to learn, right? It's to encourage each other. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to do some things that break the rules of preaching. But if you engage it, um, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to think a lot. And uh, I'm, it, this is sort of an intro to an apology for how the next few weeks. So we're going to end Acts this morning. Then next week I'm going to talk about Healthy Church. And then the following week we're going to start Galatians. And I want to encourage you to be here for that. Galatians is going to be a phenomenal story. The, the church, as we've talked about before, has a tendency doctrinally to swing. Pendulum swings. Uh, those of you who grew up in the church and had maybe parents or grandparents that were in the church, maybe a, a grandfather that was a pastor, know that there was an era in the church that was all about the fear of the Lord. The pendulum swung so far that there was really no talk about an inti intimate personal relationship with the Lord. And for those of you who don't know what I was talking about, you know growing up in the church, many of you, that you were told you never asked God why. 
Well, relationships, you in fact do ask God why. And there's stories in Scripture where you wrestle with the Lord. Even Jacob wrestled with the Lord. And yes, his thigh was injured, but he got the answer to the question he was asking. And so we do, Jesus encourages us to seek and to wrestle with him. Well, then the pendulum swung all the way the other way, and Jesus is now my lover and my best friend. The problem is, Jesus is not just your lover and your best friend. He's also God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in the middle... It it is the battle of the heart of the child of God, the follower of Jesus, not to live doctrinally, but to live following Jesus, right? It's good to have doctrine. We need to have doctrine. Doctrine is just a word that means the things that we believe based on Scripture. But the truth is, it is about an intimate relationship with God, remembering who He really is. And so we've got this pendulum that swings. And today in the church, not at Carpenter's Way necessarily, but in the church in general, we have gone now from the fear of the Lord, salvation, you don't want to go to hell, do you? To God loves you as you are and just come to him no matter what your sin is. And that's, that's true on its face, but, but the pendulum has swung so far that way now in the church that we're no call, longer calling people to repentance, which is what Jesus did. We'll talk about what repentance is. That's why we're going to do Galatians. Because adding to the gospel and taking away from the gospel makes you a cultic. Adding to the gospel, legalism. Taking away from the gospel. Not calling people to repent. Telling them that Jesus loves them as they are. That's not absolutely true. He loved them while they were yet sinners enough to die for them. But he sent the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. He must not be satisfied with how we are. He is changing us. And I believe... That I, I personally believe, we've talked about this a lot, but one of the problems in the church today is, is that there's no interest in real discipleship. That costs me too much. I just don't want to go to hell. And so in Galatians, we're going to ask, is that even salvation? What is salvation? Not what, uh, and, and we're going to fight both the right and the left. We're going to fight those who, who do not believe in the call to repentance, and we're going, to, we're going to wrestle with those who believe that you need to do this and this on top of repenting. The, the, the gospel or the, the book of Galatians is so clear, and it's going to be fun, and it's going to be exciting, and it's going to be challenging, and it's going to cause thought, which is something I love for us to do. So that's coming up. It's going to be the bottom line. So that's going to start in two weeks. Next week, like I said, I'm going to talk about what a healthy church, according to Scripture, looks like. And this week, we're going to end Acts. I want to show you a picture. Uh, Louise, would you put that picture up there for me, please? This is a drawing of uh, the Spanish explorer, Hernando Cortes. Yes, I said it like I speak the language. This guy, in 1519, set out for what he did not know he would find, but the New World... And he found himself landing on what is now the eastern side of Mexico. Many of you probably, if you've studied world history, you know the story of this guy. It wasn't long after his arrival that he and those who went with him, and he took a band of followers who were also explorers and excited to find out the new world, they found that it was dangerous. There were already people living there who didn't want them there. There were uh, animals that they had never dealt with before. The weather was difficult. And instead of turning around and going back, you will recall that this is the guy who burned his ships. Do you remember that, any of you? He burned the ships. He burned the ships not only so that he would wimp out and go back, but he burnt the ships because he was afraid that those who were going with him would go back. He would rather die doing what he was doing than go back to the life before. And that's why he burnt the ships. So there not only would be, 
but there could be no turning back. In 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> Paul openly discusses the difficulty he had faced following Christ. <clears throat> um, the song we just sang is so exciting. Not just because it's got a couple lines from Johnny Cash in it. Not just because Larry is killing the hot organ on that song. But because it's so true. Satan has us so afraid. And sometimes it's fun to sing a song that says, you can't keep my body down. You may be, you may, you may be able to take my life, but you can't, you can't touch my soul. And so as you listen to the words, the more we sing it, the more it, uh, it, just, it just wakes your soul up. Somebody started clapping in the middle when it talks about the resurrection. We should clap when we sing about the resurrection. We should go, yeah, that's my hope. <clears throat> Our hope is not found in the next election. While that may make life more comfortable, it's, it's not where our hope is found. Our hope is found in what God has promised us and has done and is doing in us. Our hope is settled business, you guys. That's what Galatians is going to be about. It's not business in the process of being settled. It is settled business. And that is where our hope lies. And the problem is, is that too often we are told only half the story, the kind of story that sells. The truth is following Jesus. Uh, in, in one of the chosen, I know the chosen, it's, it's fiction, but it's based upon Scripture, and so much of the lines are based on truth. Jesus said in, in, the, in the series on, on the second season, in the first episode, he looks at a guy who chooses not to be a follower and, and whose daughter is following. He said, to those who have not chosen to follow, I ask nothing of. But to those who follow, I will ask everything of. Jesus was very, very clear, and you know it to be true whether you like it or not, that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. And while we've turned that verse into a theme for a student camp, we, we just don't like to really think of the truth of it. That wasn't just, a, uh, just, just an illustration, but pe Jesus is actually saying, this is going to cost us everything. And as we have gone through Acts, and the reason I wanted to go through Acts with you is not so that I could teach you some new doctrines, but just so that you could see First Church living out under the power of the Holy Spirit what life was like following Jesus. Because it's wonderful and terrible. You know, if, if you live without Jesus, your life is terrible times 10 because you don't have any hope. If you live life with Jesus, yeah, there is a new set of issues on top of the regular set of issues, but we've got God at the end who is calling us home. And there is hope in that. There's joy in that. At the end of the day, we know we have purpose and calling, and that's exciting. Paul defined his life um, in 2 Corinthians. There's been a group of people who've come in and begun to attack him. And he's in prison when he writes this. And he's in prison and people are saying, see, God's judging him. So he writes to his followers in the church of Corinth to say, look, that's not true. In fact, let me tell you about my life that they haven't even mentioned. And, then, and he says, I have worked harder I've been put in prison more often, been whipped times uh, without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and robbers. 
I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry, thirsty, and have often gone without food. I have uh, shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for the churches. Who is weak without my feeling of weakness? Who has been led astray, and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, though, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. You see, that's the problem with this life in Christ. It's upside down against everything our flesh says. Our flesh says that a a stronger, talented person is the most effective person for the gospel. But not, not when God's doing the work. It's the opposite everything. You love your enemy in our kingdom. You serve those who mistreat you. You don't rise up and kill your enemies. You trust God to them. It's the opposite. Every instinct we have in Jesus' teaching seems to be the opposite, and that's why we refer to it here, and the Bible Project refers to it as the upside-down kingdom. Our king came to, be, to, to serve, not to be served. He came to die and not to live. That's weird. We understand that's weird, but we believe it's true, and we have put our hope in this, in the one who has redeemed us, and therefore we put our hope in his plan for life in the future. And Paul writes here of those who are bad mouthing him, they're right. They are so right. I have done, I have, I have been mistreated, and all those things have happened, but I'm here to tell you that I actually boast in my weakness, because in my weakness he is made strong. It wasn't long after Jesus introduced himself to Paul that Jesus actually told Paul that he was going to have to suffer for Christ. It really wasn't long into the ministry with the disciples that he explained to them that they would have to be, that they would be persecuted, that they would face trouble. And the story goes on, and we are told that in 1 and 2 Peter, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, in the book of Romans that talks about being a living sacrifice. Over and over and over we're talking about this. And because we've turned the, the church culture into just evangelism, we don't tell the whole story to each other, which we need to tell each other because we're afraid the lost won't want to be saved. Well, that's on God, not on us. It doesn't do us any good to pretend like we're being mistreated in this country right now. We're not. We've actually been better treated than we should have. We are not of this world. We're the foreigners. We're the freaks. They're living like sinners should live. We're the ones who are, who are on the outside. And because of that, they should look at us as freaks or join us. And last week I shared with you Paul writing to Corinthians and says you are, the, you are the aroma of God. To the lost you are the smell of death and to those that are being found you are the smell of life. People are drawn to us that God is calling to himself and they run from us, those who don't, aren't interested. So we come here together at, at, in, in this place in, uh, in Acts 25 and we have watched over and over again Paul and these people in this book go through great difficult times and yet, like the guy I showed you on the screen, Cortez, he never seems to look back. He's burnt the ships. Just a side note. I think there's a lot of Christians today that haven't burnt their ships. They've got an arm in the world and in God. I want heaven, but I want fun. I want heaven, I want self-pleasure. I want heaven, that's why some of us look at porn. That's why some of us drink too much. That's why some of us like to trash people. Because we've got our hands in the world and in the kingdom. I want heaven, but I also want my flesh. And the truth is, that's not how this works. 
More on that in Galatians. It's just not how it works. This is about a complete and absolute surrender, and that's what we've been looking at in Acts. And now as we get to the end of Acts, and we're going to finish it today, this is where I'm going to break the rules of preaching. I want to read to you the ending of it. Chapter 25 through 28. I'm just going to read it. Because I want you to hear how the story ends or doesn't end. So here's what I want you to do in preparation for that. If it will help you to take out a piece of paper and a pencil and scroll and draw pictures of me on it, you can do that. If your kids have crayons and they want to draw, they can. If it'll help to read the screen, it's going to be on in front of you. If it would help to read the Bible too. But do whatever you have to do in order to listen to the story that is told us by Luke about this section of Paul's ministry and life. So here we go. Acts chapter 25. It was three days after Festus arrived at Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. So for those of you who haven't been with us, Paul's imprisoned. The Jews have attacked him, almost killed him. The Roman garrison there protected him. They eventually sent him off to Rome, where he's being protected. And for two years, he's in prison there. He's in prison there because, uh, because uh, Felix doesn't want to offend his Jewish followers, but he also doesn't think Paul's done anything wrong. So it told us in last week's message that over and over they meet, and his wife is a Jew, and so they have lots of conversations about Jesus Christ and about the Messiah, and so he spends two years. Then he's taken out of that role, and this guy Festus takes over, and a week after he comes, he kicks right in to deal with this guy Paul in prison. So he takes on his new responsibilities. He leaves for Jerusalem. And verse 3, they ask Festus as a, as a favor when he gets to Jerusalem to transfer Paul to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. So again, to bring you up to speed, those of you who haven't been with us, these are Hebrew people, these are Jewish religious people who teach the Ten Commandments and are angry that Paul isn't teaching that you're redeemed by keeping the Ten Commandments, who are about to break commandment number six. If you murder somebody on a road on the way to a court, that's murder. Right? This is commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. These people believe that you could break the own rules that you believe were sacrosanct for their own purposes. The ends justifies the means. So they asked Festus for a favor. They want to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul went to Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me if Paul has done anything wrong. Make your case. Make your accusations. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea, that's Rome, and on the following day he took his seat in court and he ordered that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations that they couldn't prove. Paul denied these charges. Not guilty of any crime against Jewish laws or the temple of the Roman government, he said. Then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? But Paul replied, no. This is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here. You know very well that I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I now appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, very well, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. So just, just a side note, I know that a lot of you have heard this story, have heard that that's an official thing. It is. But in no way was Festus required to ab actually send him to Rome. He, did not, he was not required. That's why he met with his advisors here to talk about whether he had enough defense to send him on 
uh, to Caesar. Uh, so, uh, so that's what happens here. A few days later, King Agrippa arrived with his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus. <laughs> Bernice sounds like, I don't know, sounds like a lady from the 60s. Um, during their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. All right, so don't let the word king throw you off. This is weird. Roman government is weird. I'm going to explain it. At this time, King Agrippa was young. He was about 30 years of age, and he was the ruler of the territories north, uh, northeast of Palestine, given the title of king. Now, the king isn't the highest position in the Roman court, as you would imagine. It was Caesar that was that. That was the highest position. Because he was a friend of the Roman imperial family, he was awarded the privilege of appointing the Jewish high priest. Okay, let that sink in. So the Jewish high priest was appointed by kings who were regional leaders. So it wasn't even a religious position. It was no longer an inherited thing out of the line of, of Levi or any biblical thing. It was awarded. It was a political position, and that explains some of why Jesus was killed, why Pilate allowed it. That's why this, because there's an understanding between Rome and the Jewish leaders. So he was also made custodian of the temple treasury. His background made him eminently qualified to hear Paul. He was acquainted with the Jewish religion. So Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. There's this prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. I pointed out to, that, uh, to them that Roman law does not convict people without a trial. They must be given an opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When the accusers came to me for trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day, and I ordered Paul brought in. But the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is now alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things, so I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appeared, appealed to have his case decided by the emperor, so I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. I'd like to hear him myself, King Agrippa said. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. Okay, so again, take a breath. I want you to notice what's going on here. Everything in the Bible is not religious, okay? You, you've got to understand that much of this, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, are historical records. For Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're eyewitness accounts. And even Luke, about 50 to 60% of it is eyewitnesses accounts from a doctor who is writing to a guy named Theophilus. I'm going to get into that a little bit later. But to explain what's happening here, who this church is. We don't know the reasons he's writing, but that's what you have here in Acts. This is not a religious document. And, and I want you to notice, the reason that's important is I want you to note that not everything happening here is anti-Jesus or anti-God or anti-Paul. You have the Jews who want to silence Jesus, so they killed him. The problem was that, uh, that grave didn't keep his body down. And so this movement is growing, and the Jewish leaders who thought killing him would solve it now wants to kill his most powerful followers. Paul is, Paul is part of that. It's a Jewish or it's a religious decision. But as far as Rome is concerned, they don't care about the religion. They care about peace. Why does that matter? Because you've been raised in a church that says everybody's against you because of what you believe. That's not true. Satan is against you because of what you believe. But he uses lots of different forces in order to enact his power. So please understand, the world is not against you. Satan is against you. But God is for you. Take a breath. Let that sink in. God is for you. 
Ain't no way he can keep this body down. We not only won't lose, we can't lose. Even if Paul is tried and killed. And what's Paul doing in the middle of all this? Using politics. He's just working up the system. Doing the best he can to play chess. And God is going to use that. So we pick it up in verse 23. So the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived. I just think that's such a dumb name. And King, sorry, Bernice. If your name is Bernice, it's not personal. I just think it's a weird Bible name. I mean, she should have a name like something else. Mary is a good Bible name. Or Rebecca. So the next day, Agrippa and his, and his very American wife, Bernice, arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by mil Now picture this. This isn't just biblical. This is historical. And Luke is writing this down. He's watching all this. So they arrived, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I have decided to send him to Rome. But what shall I write to the emperor? For there's no clear charge against him. So I have brought him here before all of you, especially you, King Agrippa. So after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to emperor without specifying the charges there against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul gesturing with his hand, starting his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by Jewish leaders. For I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. Blah, 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 blah. Paul's a smart guy. If you get a chance to stand before President Biden and talk to him, start by saying something nice, please. It doesn't do any good to walk in and say, I didn't vote for you. You don't have to do that. It's, it's not even nice. It's not kind. We are an upside-down kingdom. We don't start by telling off our enemies. We start by honoring life. Sanctity of life isn't just something you do when a baby's unborn. Sanctity of life is all life. And he shows respect to him here. So he tells him to talk. Uh, let's see, verse 3 of 26. Um, verse 4, as the Jewish leaders are all aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people in Jerusalem. If they will admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of, the, of our religion. Our religion. Still including himself in the Jewish religion. And now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day. And they share the same hope I have. Yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the name of Jesus Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them. When they were condemned to death, many times I had, punished in the, I, I had them punished in the synagogue to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. One day, 
I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with authority and commission of the leading priests. And about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me, and tell them that I will show what I will show you in the future, and I will rescue you from both your people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And so, King, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to, them, to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all Judea and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sin and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they have do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time, so I can testify to everyone, from the least to the greatest, that I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way... Announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Okay, take a breath. You, you kind of, even if you don't get every sentence of that, even if you don't get every inclination, you, you just, you saw what Paul just did, right? He starts with respect, with respect, and then what does he do? What has he just done? He told a story, right? He didn't get into doctrinal debates. He didn't get into why the Jews are wrong. He didn't tell Agrippa that he needed to stop worshiping the multiple gods. He simply told his story. And that's what we call witnessing. Witnessing is not going to EE and being trained in how to take a survey. It's not just in learning how to witness the Romans' road. It's been hijacked. Witnessing, according to Paul, is simply telling your story and that they're invited to join you. That's it. We've made it so dang comp complicated. Everything in the modern church has become a program. This isn't a program. Yes, they practice, but that's not why they lead worship. If we have to just do it at the piano, we'll do it at a piano. If we have to do it acapoco, we'll do it acapoco. Ah, you caught that. If, if, if we have to just stand here and read the Scripture, we'll just stand here and read the Scripture. Brothers and sisters, it's time for the church to wake up and quit pretending this is a program that God ordained. What's He's ordained is the family and children of God. And we go out there and we live, and some of you are teachers. God bless you. Ooh, you had meet the teacher. A lot of you are smiling, and some of you are gnashing of teeth. It's hard. But that's why it's a mission. Of course it's hard. As this culture makes it more and more difficult for us to, to, to do program evangelism, you are the evangelist. Well, I'm not trained. I don't know what to say. Just go live it. Let the Holy Spirit work through you. And even if you end up in jail, all you got to do is tell the truth. That's all Paul's doing. Paul isn't worrying about dying on this day. He actually says that God has protected him. And last time I remember, a couple chapters ago, he actually was almost beat to death. You see, Paul was fully invested in the mission work of God. Are we? It's so easy to say, that's church. But this is my life. They're the same. Again, that's why we're doing Galatians. 
because we've allowed Satan to separate our religious life and our spiritual life and our secular life. And they're all one. They've all been renewed. We have crucified like Paul the old life and we've been resurrected into a new life. And everything is his. And, and it's not complicated. I don't know, pastor, we're talking about suffering. I won't know what to say. Just do what Paul did. Tell him how you got there. He doesn't say anything magical here. At the end, he says, he sent me to the Gentiles, and I'm here today to tell you, you can join us. This is what it looks like to witness. It's not a program or a doctrinal argument. It's simply telling what you've seen, heard, and experienced. So that's why you need to experience it yourself. That's why this has to be more than church attendance. It's got to be a personal, intimate walk with God. You deal with God like you deal with your husband or your wife. We don't have to pray every time with our hands folded and our eyes closed. Talk to Him while you're driving, while you're cutting down a tree, while you're teaching a class, while the kids are taking a lesson, while, you're, while your children are screaming. Talk to God. Invite Him in to help. Give me wisdom and instruction. Get involved. Let the Holy Spirit take your life. He is there if you're saved. And I think for too long, we have trained the Holy Spirit out of you. You're not foolish. You're inhabited. I have no, it used to be, and it doesn't happen here much anymore, and I'm glad for that. But there was a day in ministry when somebody had a cousin that was dying, they would call me to go to the bedside. And I started asking, okay, I'll be glad to go, but have you witnessed to them? No, they wouldn't hear it from me. You know, it would cause problems in my family. No, it's your job. It's your mission field. Wait for God to show you when, but don't be afraid to do your work. Remember, Paul was invited by King Agrippa to speak. He didn't just take over the room. So we pick up. Verse 24. And to the witness, the testimony of Paul here, look at King Agrippa, or uh, look at Festus's response. Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. But Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these teachings. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they are not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So take a deep breath before we go to the next verse. Not yet, Louise. It's a big, big next verse here. Paul knows this guy. And he knows that he's been studying. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. That's why Agrippa wanted to meet him. You want to know what happens at this moment? Put the next verse up there. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you could persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? <laughs> what's, that, what's that line? I think it's Shakespeare. Me think thou dost protest too much. He jumps forward. Stop it, Paul. You think you could convince me today to be follow your Jesus? Paul already knows this guy's interested. And boy, did he hit it there. Man. Verse 29, Paul replies, oh, I, I would not have thought of this, but this is just the Holy Spirit. Whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. It's witnessing. It's testimony. You trying to convince me? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And everybody here, including the high priest. 
See, that's what we do. We don't hold on to life too tight. We hold on to Jesus. Tighter. Then the king, the governor, and Bernice. <laughs> Come on, you're going to laugh every time you read that now. Isn't it weird it keeps announcing her? It couldn't be the king and his group. It's the king, the governor, and Bernice. She must have been something. I just picture her as Mrs. Cleaver. <laughs> and all the others stood and left. As they went out, they talked it over and agreed, this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. It's not on us. When the time came, we set sail for Italy. Okay, here we go. <laughs> just, just follow along. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thess Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a ship. How does Luke know all this? He was there. He followed. We left on a ship whose home port was a weird name on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province. The next day, when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul, and he let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Putting out to sea from there, we, continue, we encountered strong winds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course, so we sailed north of Cyprus between the island of, and the mainland. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the, the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, leading to Myra in the um, province of Lycia. There, the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria who was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. So you know what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of detail here, but what's going on is he's being sent to meet with Caesar. Where's Caesar? He's in Italy, in Rome, the capital. He's going there. And so Luke, who hasn't, who's bored, is recording everything that happens. So, verse 6, or 7. We had several days of slow sailing, and after great difficulty, we finally neared Sidus. But the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered island, uh, coast of the island, past the Cape of Salome. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lysa, or Lacia. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Men, he said, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's cast, uh, captain and the owner than to Paul. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. Luke, you're overriding this. It's important, though. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and the wind of typhoon strengthened, called a northeaster, burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed along the sheltered side of the small island called Cadia, where, we had, where there was great difficulty. So we hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Then the sailors bound ropes and around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across the sandbars of Cyrus off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. 
The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing cargo overboard. The following day, even took some of the ship's gear and, and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars, until at, at last all hope was gone. Isn't following Jesus exciting? Now let me ask some questions that none of us are thinking of. Number one, isn't it a waste for God to wait? Isn't it a waste for God to waste, waste three months of Paul's life putting him on a ship that's running amok? When he's God, he can do anything he wants. We have no idea what he's doing on the ship at this point, but I assure you, he's doing ministry or throwing up. You may be right now in the place that Paul is. I'm glad for this detail. Because you might be right now on a ship going, why am I here? Get me to Italy. Let me talk to the king. Or you might be going, I, I'm about to board a ship. I don't know what's going on. Have you seen my class? My kids are crazy. Their parents are crazier. Whatever you're doing right now that's going on in your life, you might feel like you're on a ship being wasted. Well, welcome to Paul's world. This is the world of following Jesus, you guys. Getting cancer, getting sick, having your car blow up, having five things go down in your home. Those are all part of life, and God is ordaining them if you're his child. And there's two ways we could look at it. We can blame Biden or Trump, or we can keep, keep just holding on and doing the best we can. I'm sorry that too many guys like me make it sound like every day is a Billy Graham moment. It's not. There's a lot of middle of days that are Paul moments of being at sea in a terrible storm. So what am I supposed to do? Do what Paul did. Hold on. Verse 21. No one had eaten for a long time. I'll bet. You ever been seasick? Finally, Paul called the crew together and he said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. <laughs> that, that's funny. That's exactly what I would have been thinking. But this guy's got guts to say it. Don't you love somebody when you're about to die going, I told you we shouldn't have gone on this trip. That's basically what we just heard. You would have avoided all this damage and loss had you listened to me. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives even though the ship will go down. For, the last, for last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe in God. It will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. It was about midnight. On the 14th night of the storm, <laughs> that stinks, 14 nights of this part of the trip. He's been at sail for a couple months already. This is bad. As we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found that the water was 120 feet deep. But a little later they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid that we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Now they're religious. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered a lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors uh, from the front of the ship. But Paul said to the commanding officers and soldiers, you're going to die unless, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the sailors cut the ropes of the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You have been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will, uh, heads will perish. Then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all, and broke off a piece and ate of it. Sounds like communion. 
Then everyone was encouraged and began to eat. All 276 of us who were aboard. Faithful to the end, even when he isn't doing anything. How about you? How about you? How you doing in the midst of your storm? Well, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. It's not fair. I have no idea what good comes out of this, except that we can read it and laugh about it. But you and I have both been in situations where we're like, God, what, what, what good could possibly come from this? And God goes, that's none of your concern. What is your concern is you gave yourself to me, so trust me. After eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. <laughs> I don't know. Am I the only one who thought if you haven't eaten much that you don't want to throw the food over? When morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and wondered if they could get to shore by running the ship aground. So they cut off the anchors and, let them, um, and left them in the sea. Then they lowered the rudders, raised the foresail, and headed towards shore. But they hit a shoal, or shoal and ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship, ship struck fast when the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of wind and began to break apart. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. But the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul, so he didn't let them carry out their plan. And then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the bro broken ship, so everyone escaped safely to shore. Now, we're almost done, but I do want to point this out. Paul wasn't going, I'm fine. That's not what's going on in this ship. Paul is holding on for dear life. Paul, Paul is scared. Well, how can you say that? The verse doesn't say he's not scared. Listen, he's a dude. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to drown. And yes, he's heard from God that everything's going to be just fine. But so have you. This is a life we're living. It's a real life. And there's a reason why God came to him and told him to be encouraged there's a reason that the Lord comes and says it's going to be okay. This is hard. This life here is hard. It can be even harder in, to some degree while with hope if you're a child of God. Because you look up in heaven and you go, what's going on? It's okay. It's okay. So they all go overboard. Some swim to shore. Some, uh, some are holding on to planks or debris from a broken ship. But everyone escapes safely to shore. Chapter 28. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It's cold, it was cold and rainy, so they built fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks it was, uh, and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. To which Paul said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Seriously. Bit him on the hand? You just about shipwrecked me. The Jews want to kill me. They ripped me apart. You got these Gentile dogs saving me. Now I have to go meet with Caesar and a snake on top of it, God? You've never felt that, have you? What else could happen to me today? Wait, I'm not going to ask. Okay, Lord, I've had enough. It bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his hand and said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not prevent him to live. But, Shaul, but Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. <laughs> I want you to know, I'd have jumped in the fire. I hate snakes. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their mind. He's not under judgment. He's God. You think people are confused? 
Always have been. Near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to uh, some guy. That is a, that is a definitely Roman-sounding name. The chief official of the island. He welcomed us to treat us kindly for three days. As it happened, his father was ill in fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him and laid hands on him, and he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honors, and when time had come to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. So what is Paul's life at this point? Holding onto a boat for dear life, making sure the people eat on the ship, gathering wood for a fire, being bit by a snake, and healing a sick man, all in a day's work for the man of God. Welcome to the life of following Jesus. A tough life, but what a life. It was three months after the shipwreck that we set sail on another ship that had wintered at the island. This has been going on Three months now. It was an Alexandrian ship with the twin gods as figurehead. Our first stop was in Syracuse, where we stayed three days. From there, we sailed across to Rigium. A day later, uh, a day later, a south wind began blowing. So the following day, we sailed up the coast to Patoli. There, we found some believers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters in Rome had heard we were coming and they came to meet us at the Forum of the Appian Way. Others joined us there at three taverns, not good Baptists. When Paul saw them, he was encouraged and he thanked God. See, there's good days in the middle, isn't there? When we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. Three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish believers. He said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me and wanted to release me because they found no cause for death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. I asked you to come here today so that we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I'm bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. They replied, we've had no letters from Judea or reports against you from anyone who's come here, but we want to hear what you believe. For the only thing we know about this uh, moment is that it is denounced everywhere. So a time was set, and on a day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and he testified about the kingdom of God, and he tried to persuade them about Jesus from the Scriptures. Now you know why you need to know the Scriptures. Using the laws of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. After they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with a final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit has, was right when he said to your ancestors through the Isaiah the prophet, go and say to his people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of people are hardened and their ears cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes so that their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. So, I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. End of Acts. Which, if you think about it, is kind of a weird ending, isn't it? I mean... We're not exactly sure of what Luke's intent was in writing this, but I wonder if Theophilus was part of Caesar's court. 
He could have been writing this to explain how he got into his court because that's where the story ends. He's in Rome. He's about to stand before Caesar. And he wants at least somebody in the court to understand. Luke's his friend. Luke's on this journey. Luke doesn't want to see his buddy killed. He could have written this for that. Whatever, whatever it is, whatever the reason, isn't it interesting that this story doesn't end? You know why I think it doesn't have a proper ending? Because the book of Acts is not about Paul. It's about the Holy Spirit. And what he will do and can do through a man or men or women who are fully surrendered to him. The book of Acts is not about, as you've been told, extraordinary men who did extraordinary things for God. It's about ordinary men who are called and empowered by an extraordinary God to do extraordinary things. Superhuman things. To hold on to faith. To trust when it seems ridiculous to trust. To even survive things that nobody should survive. Knowing that God has a plan. The story of Acts is about ordinary men who were called and empowered by an extraordinary God to do extraordinary things. This story has no end because the story isn't done being written. You see, the story of the church, God using individual people to, to tell the world of himself, isn't done until the last chapter of Revelation. We have a chapter. You have a chapter. Carpenter's Way has a chapter. The question is, what's being written about us? Are we faithful? Are we enduring? Are we afraid? Are we wishy-washy? What's our chapter say? It's not done being written. In 2 Corinthians 5, and I end with this, Paul wrote this. What this means is that those who have become Christians have become new people. They're not the same anymore, for the old life is gone and a whole new life has begun. All this newness of life is from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, what Christ did. And God has given now us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message he has given us to tell others. We are Christ's ambassadors. And God is using us to speak to you. We urge you, as though Christ himself were pleading with you, be reconciled to God. For God made Christ who had never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Brothers and sisters, your job, my teacher friends, my educator friends, your job this year is to teach English and math or to feed the kids or drive the bus. But your real job is to be a representative of our upside-down kingdom. That means to love the unlovely, to care for the ugly, to not respond rudely to the rude, to love them. To look beyond circumstances that seem like, from a human point of view, are tragic, and trust in God, knowing that He is the God of the tragic, as well as the victorious. This story is about, about men and women who surrendered their life to God, and I want to be part of that story. Too often in the church today, people say, I wish the church today was like the New Testament church. Well, if you want to be like the New Testament church, be the New Testament people. Today is yours. Whatever you ask, I'll be faithful. I'll trust in you. And I know some of you are going through very difficult things. And I know the media is doing its very best to scare you. And it's scary out there. But you know what? 
You're not going to die of coronavirus until God says it's time for you to come home. So you keep telling people about Jesus. Masked, unmasked, vaccinated, unvaccinated. You keep walking with Jesus. And don't get in the way. You don't have to save our country. You don't have to save the reputation of the church. You just go be the church. That's all God's asking. Everything. Every day. Every minute. That's all. Everything. That's all. Piece of cake, right? Lord Jesus, we give you everything. Now help us with our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes. If you're visiting with us, uh, my dad and my Karen will be at the table out there. So get your information to them. We love you. Have a wonderful Sunday.